The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 145. And we have an interview today. But before I tell you about the person we're going to be interviewing, I want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also check us out on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel now, and we are videoing our podcast, so for anyone that prefers video, you can go to YouTube and watch, and please give us a five-star rating so that we can have more and more people listen to our message of hope and help. So today we're going to be interviewing um, an award-winning author and poet. Her name is Melissa A. Bond. She has performed her own written works in numerous venues in Salt Lake City. She has performed in other productions, and she spent several years writing and producing fictional shorts for KRCL, Utah's only independent radio station. After Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, Melissa flew to Biloxi for six weeks to support efforts to run supplies such as water, food, and first aid to the people that were still in Biloxi. Four months later, she and two other friends raised money to bring additional supplies to the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. While there, Melissa and her friends helped tear down soggy drywall and support the people in the Ninth Ward in sifting through the remains of their homes. In the evenings, Melissa would write. Upon their return, Melissa and her fellow artists created a multimedia show of their time in New Orleans and toured the show through Houston, San Francisco, New Orleans, and Salt Lake City. Melissa ran a Kickstarter to support the writing of her current book, which details her shocking dependency upon the Ativan her doctor had prescribed for sleep. The Kickstarter funded in three days. The first draft of the book won second place in the Utah Original Writers Competition. Poe Ballantyne judged and called the book poetic and lyrical, having been elevated to a work of art. While writing this book, Melissa also wrote for the national blogs Mad in America and Ravishly, all while raising two hilarious children. Her son is the inspiration behind her short film Googled, which premiered at the San Jose International Short Film Festival in 2016. So without further ado, let's talk to Melissa A. Bond. So Melissa, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I always appreciate when people are willing to share their stories. I know that any type of addiction is not necessarily someone's favorite part of their life story, but I think that the more we get different stories and we put them out there that people listening know that they're not alone and that they can get help and hope. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm honored to be part of uh, this community you've created. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, start with your story. You had your own addiction. How did that get started? Um, so I think it's, I think it's uh, pertinent to say that I was raised in a family of addicts. So uh, my mother uh, had a strong addiction and went into recovery when I was 17. Um, it, it, you know, permeates the family. So I, from a very early age, had been very conscious and cautious and fearful. 
Um, so I was very surprised to, to get caught up. Um, what happened was I had um, two pregnancies close together. I had my son, and then six months later, I became pregnant with my daughter. Um, during that time, I started to experience uh, insomnia that was um, more severe than anything I've been through in my life. It was day after day after day of sleeping an hour or two, um, and I was pregnant, so they couldn't do any kind of research or put me on any kind of medication. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. I think the gravity of the insomnia made me very susceptible. So they put me on um, Ambien, which was a very bad drug for me. And then I cold turkeyed when my daughter was born. And three months later, my insomnia was so severe, I was really ready to do anything. So I went to see a doctor who claimed to be an expert in you know, hormonal issues. And he said, you know, you absolutely have to sleep. I'm going to give you a sedative. And that was the beginning. At that point, I, I didn't care. I wanted him to knock me out with a two by four. So um, there may be something in my brain chemistry, but I think this, uh, the Ativan is a very highly addictive drug. So despite my caution as a, uh, you know, young woman and then later adult, I didn't care. The, I think the pain of the insomnia was so severe that I just kept taking it per his recommendations. So um, I think it was, and then I think um, I'll describe the point at which I realized that I was so physically dependent, I could not get off on my own. Um, what I do want to say was that there was a, it's, it's a, it's a story about being addicted to a drug, but it's very different than the cultural narrative that we have that so many people suffer under. Um, and that's one thing that I had wanted to talk about. It was a physical dependence, but there was no part of me that ever used it improperly or against my doctor's orders. It was just a desperation to have some semblance of normal sleep. And, and yet I suffered, I think, the same way I had seen people that were that were addicted in the way our cultural uh, definition of it exists. You know, I think you're right. And I think you bring up a really good point that we have brought up over and over again on the podcast. And that is um, people who become addicted because their doctors prescribe either a painkiller or in your case, sleeping medication. You just have to be careful. Uh, there's no there's no way around it. You we all want to believe that our doctor knows what they're talking about and has our best interest mm -hmm. at heart. And mostly that's true, but oftentimes they don't, they don't know the long-term effects. And there you go. There's a great example. This was a great example because, um, and also our doctors often really don't always know. He told me that it was absolutely safe even though he kept increasing my dosage, which would have normally in any normal circumstance set off my sensors. Right. Um, but I was so desperate. You get, you know, people I think can get to points in their life where they really, they have to trust or they just, the, the, um, the pain is so great. They will, they will put caution aside. And I think, um, and he raised my dose pretty rapidly. So I think um, for whatever reason, he felt that they were fine, but it, um, got to the point where it was beginning to 
degrade um, uh, me physically, mentally. I couldn't remember a thing from one day to the next. I would have friends show up at my door and say, we talked yesterday about getting together and I wouldn't have no recollection. Um, I lost about 15% of my body weight because I couldn't eat. I would have stomach cramps and I kept thinking, what's, what's, what's happening? I would, I would fall, you know, I, I couldn't walk through a room straight without running into something. So um, for me, there was a sense of, is there, what is happening to me? You know, I was this vital, vibrant, very healthy woman. And suddenly I am this, you know, rail thin, you know, ribs sticking out like railroad ties and barely able to walk a block. Wow. All within the realm of maybe eight months. Wow. Yeah. So scary. I mean, that's scary. And I was also just going to make a comment that when you have children, you kind of are sleep deprived anyway. So so to be even further sleep deprived on top of that, I can't, I can't even go there. I can't even think with that. (laughs) Right, right. It's sort of there becomes this sense of like, what's real and what's what's okay and what's not. And um, I so so the point at which I suddenly realized, wait a minute, um, this is this is far beyond what what I would consider you know normal uh, sleep deprived exhausted motherhood was um, was the night when I when I had the sudden realization this radical realization that the drugs themselves were actually impacting my body to such a degree that I was becoming disabled wow. and it's it's radical wow. to me that it took so long but what happened should I tell this story now sure. Yeah. Um, my daughter was about a year and a half. So I had been on them the entire year, day after day, um, just at nighttime to sleep. And I was, I had given her a bath. It was this very, you know, sweet scene of my little girl with her little teacups pouring water in the bath. And, you know, um, I had gotten her out and put her, she had this little green froggy towel that I would sort of put over her head. And we're having our nighttime ritual and I walk, I'm holding her, my little, my beautiful little girl, I'm holding her. We walk out of the bathroom and her room was just to the left. And without warning, it was as though my legs, somebody had chopped my legs out from beneath me. I was suddenly with my daughter falling like a dead body from a bridge. And I could see her head going straight towards this, um, uh, you know, curve er, the um, corner corner room and it was going to split her head open and I could do nothing. So I just wrenched my shoulder, ran my head and my shoulder into the corner and, and just fell onto the carpet. And the rest of my muscles were working fine, but my legs had completely just stopped working. And so we both lay there on the carpet. My son was asleep and I thought, I've got MS. I've got a brain tumor. What something, this is not normal. And then within about 30 seconds, my legs started to work again as if nothing had happened. And it was in that moment I thought, I can't, I've never researched these drugs. My, my body, this has never been anything. And I went upstairs, I got her to bed. I went upstairs and all of the research was there. It took very little time to find that I was Currently, at six milligrams of Ativan nightly, I was in what's called withdrawal tolerance. So I was taking doctor-prescribed doses every night, and I was in profound withdrawals because my brain had reached tolerance. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, 
devastating. Yeah. Uh, because I knew it would only continue. Wow. I mean, <sighs> there it is. I mean, do you know, doing the research, it's good that you, yeah, you had that really bad incident with your daughter and fortunately it came out okay. But if you hadn't researched it, I may not have known. No, I may not have known. This is this is what scares me so much about um, this particular kind of dependency is that it's so profound and it affects people to such a degree. But the doctors aren't even aware of the extent of it. And I mean, I really I could have gone to the doctor and said, I'm having these symptoms, I'm falling, I can't remember anything, and they would have done neurological tests. I could have been medicated with some other medications. Um, I would have spent a fortune, you know, and um, I don't think they ever would have said, maybe this is the Ativan. I don't think so either. I think they would have given you another drug, and that drug would have had its own side effects and then you have to do another one and it's just it's a really a vicious cycle it's this horrible just um um and and people get um over medicated all the time because the the um the doctors are unaware they don't think to ask and i just out of luck i think suddenly realized and, and when I, and the, I think that the w- thing that was the most terrifying was I said, okay, okay, uh, my body is so addicted to these things. I would love to go into the bathroom and to just take that pill bottle and just dump it, you know, and get rid of it and never take them again. And may, I didn't know what to do with the insomnia at that point, but it was so devastating. And what I read was, whatever you do don't stop taking them because you can have a fatal seizure. It is the only drug besides alcohol that can kill you. If you stop right, you know, cold Turkey. Wow. And, and that's when I thought I'm in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I will just make a comment that there are other psychiatric medications that um, same thing. You can't cold Turkey. You can, you can right. die if you just cold Turkey them. And yeah. doctors don't tell you that. No, no, it, it becomes that, Oh shoot. And, and I, I went to see, I found a new doctor that was um, a friend had recommended that was very devoted to her patients. So I knew I would have access to her quite a bit. I could text her. And we tried for four months for me to withdraw very, very, very slowly. And um, the first night, and she, one of the things she told me was we have no protocol. We don't know how to get you off these drugs. We can't just pull you off. So we're just going to take a tiny little slice, you know, and I'm in there and I just, I felt, I think the thing that was the most painful was I felt the shame that is such a shadow in the, um, for people that become addicted to drugs because there's this sense of, of culpability or that there's this moral compass that has somehow gone wrong. And I thought, did I do something wrong? You know, did I somehow, um, throw caution to the wind? Was there some part of me that just would have done anything to um, get relief? And I really think for anyone that's an addict, that is really at the core of it. There's pain and there's a way to try to alleviate that pain. And that was really where I realized, you know, there's no shame in that as a human being. 
There is no shame. And I, but it's still, it was a real tough battle inside of me, you know, especially with having parents that I thought, how could you have done this? You know, I blamed them and it really humbled me (laughs) deeply. (laughs) Right. You are listening to the addiction podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So how long did it take? You said four months to step you down. Were you done then in four months or was it longer than that? How long did it take? It was four months that we uh, initially tried before that doctor gave up. So the first time I cut my dose just a tiny little bit, I had a stroke in the floor of my daughter's bedroom. I, I remember waking up to her crying I had, I had desperately, I, we had said, okay, well, I'm just going to cut the tiniest little slice off. And I went into her bedroom and was getting ready to pick her up this little beautiful loaf of a body from her crib and suddenly just collapsed on the floor with these radical like neon colors. It was a, a parietal um, stroke. Um, really thought I was dying and then blackness. And I woke up. She was not crying anymore, and I could barely move my arms and legs. And it took me all night to crawl up the stairs, make it into the bedroom. And I remember trying to wake up my husband at the time by lip, because I couldn't talk, lifting my arm and just dropping it on his face. (laughs) (laughs) And he wouldn't, he didn't wake up. And then I, and then I passed out again. So, um, after four months of this, I didn't have another stroke, but I had a number of just very so severe withdrawals that she said, I do not know how to get you off of these. We've got to, we've got to expand our search to a doctor that is so well-versed in benzodiazepines that he can safely get you off because I, I, you know, I was trying to raise two infants. Yeah. I was trying to I, at that point, I couldn't work. I had been a um, freelancer, journalist, poet, and I, I could barely write. I could barely read. And so we f- I found someone, and he changed my life, and it took a year. 
of wow. withdrawals at that point, every single day struggling with a really radical fire under the skin, muscle um, twitches. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't look people in the eye. It was a hypersensitivity that's so acute. I, um, I really just had to narrow my life down and create a year long withdrawal um, program. Wow. That's a and long I'm, withdrawal. I consider myself, it's a long time. I feel like an Olympian. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before because our, our main sponsor is Narconon Ojai, and in the Narconon program, they do uh, drug-free withdrawal. Now, they would not have done withdrawal on you. Probably they would have sent you to someone to step you down because of the type of drug it was. But a withdrawal from heroin can be done in two weeks, do you know? Yep. And you think, oh, yep. heroin, worst drug ever. I mean, the fact that it yeah. took a year, that's just, that's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing, which is why I think why I think it's so still something that people um, are not aware of because it's so radically difficult. And um, most, a lot of people don't make it. Um, they'll go too fast and they will end up in the ER and they will get immediately shot with uh, benzo. Or they will have a psychotic break. So you have to do it under, you know, medical supervision, but someone who really knows because the, I, um, I would have these sort of surges. I would drop uh, tape. The taper was one tenth of my dose. And then two days in my brain would register and the withdrawals would come like a wildfire. And I would just have to sort of hold on for about four or five days until my brain regulated again. And it's something that I, um, I would say at this point, nothing, nothing scares me anymore <laughs> because it was the most horrific thing I have ever been through. And I just have uh, so much compassion now and so much um, inner strength. I mean, those are the positives, but I also am aware how I was very lucky in the way I was able to construct um, a way to take care of my children. Um, I didn't have to work. I had a husband that was able to kind of keep the lights on so I could create a withdrawal program and not everyone is so lucky. It's a, it's a withdrawal that we're not really aware of how to, how to manage in this culture. Wow. They're, they're starting in the UK, but in the United States, we are just flummoxed. Huh. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm, I applaud you for getting through it. That obviously was not an easy thing to do. And I, I really do applaud you yeah. making it through. Thank you. Thank you. I think, um, you know, I ended up, uh, I, I blogged a lot. Um, what, once I was able to start writing at that point, there was a fury inside of me that the medical community didn't realize, you know, as I imagine um, a lot of people that were addicted to opiates, you know, just as painkillers felt that fury, how could you have betrayed me this way? And so I started writing and writing and writing and, um, Eventually, on one of my blogs, ABC contacted me and said, you know, we have a sense that this could be a really big, big issue. And they ended up interviewing me. It was just the most bizarre experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to talk about the most personal um, anguish 
a person can go through. I imagine any, any, um, any person that's addicted to talk about, and I remember actually they said to me, would you, would you go off like the last five milligrams? I think, I think I should say that I never got entirely off. I got down to five milligrams of Valium. Um, at which point I kept trying to taper and my body would absolutely be a firestorm. And there were some things in my family that were happening at that point. My, my doctor said, As, at five milligrams, you are not suffering cognitive decline anymore. You've gained weight. You can walk a straight line. We can hold here and you're not going to suffer extreme you know, repercussions. But they said to me on ABC, would you go off the five milligrams on camera? <laughs> and I thought, oh, television <laughs> what a bad idea and i briefly what a bad idea and i thought you know there's uh, and what i said to them was you can't you can't film english you can't see what's happening inside of the person just like anyone who's suffering from addiction you can't see what's happening hmm. inside of that person what they're going through you know their physical their emotional anguish it's not it's not televisable so wow Amazing yeah. story. And that one that I think people need to be aware of, you know, I think more and more people now are aware of the dangers of painkillers, but maybe yes. not so much sleeping pills, you know, not so much benzodiazepines people. Um, I, in my research, I've um, looked at what I call the kind of the lexicon, the language that we use culturally around various drugs mm -hmm. and how it changes throughout the years and with opioids because we have an awareness now of how dangerous they are the lexicon and the images that you see are all um, frightening they're cautionary um, there's no joking around about opi opioids with benzodiazepines i went on um, because these include valium clonopin um ativan those are those are, and and xanax I got on Pinterest and there were just pages and pages of jokes, um, pictures of 50 style eras, moms saying Xanax breakfast of champions, you know, Xanax and a donut. I mean, the, and the, what I'm, and what I realized is the lexicon is still the way we talk about it is with jokes as like these, sort of non-damaging, these are the chill pills. There's still so much sort of casualness around them. And it belies the fact that if you get hooked on these, you may never get off. You may suffer a year of withdrawals if you're lucky. Wow. And that, that's why I am trying to sort of be a force of education for people because I do not want anyone to have to suffer that way. I I think it's yeah. laudable that you're doing that. I I just I can't imagine having to go through a year's worth of withdrawal. So you still have to take a low dose of Valium to this day. I still take a low dose. Um, it's interesting because I I recently had somebody ask the question, what what is the thing you're most afraid of? And I thought, I'm I'm not afraid of death. I feel like I've gotten close enough to that a couple of times. Um, I, I would be afraid of something happening to my children, but the thing that strikes fear in me is going through withdrawals again. Mm. Um, it's something I'm, I'm raising my children now. I'm a single mom and I've got a son with a disability. So that um, is part of it. I, 
I can't, as, as long as I'm stable and I'm not seeing decline, I will stay on that until they're raised. Maybe there's a point, but, but I've been told, I've been working with benzodiazepine groups um, like the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Um, there's several of them that are doing, trying to get more research and there's a lot that seems to be pointing to permanent brain damage in terms of the structural um, uh, uh, structural aspects of the brain that, that are the GABA receptors, which is why going off entirely can sometimes be incredibly hard because the brain to regain the GABA receptors fully, it might not happen. And so um, that's something that is another part of the cautionary tale. It's not something that you really, you're messing with the brain's structures and everyone's brain sort of adapts to the drugs differently. But mine, I, I may never get off that five milligrams. I would like to, but at this point I'm, I'm happy to be stable, to walk a straight line, to hold my children, to have a job, you know, to be able to talk with you. It's a tremendous thing. Understood. So you've written a book, right? More than one. That's right. <laughs> More yeah, than one, right? I, yeah, yeah. I, I started my life as a poet, um, became a journalist. I loved um, journalism and have always, always written. And this was such a dramatic experience and so uh, long-term. And there were so many... Um, there was so much humbling um, that came out of it. Initially, it was a therapeutic um, book, and then it became a book for of advocacy. And now, my hope is that it is a work of art because I've put everything into it. I'm um, I'm currently working towards getting an agent and publisher, but I'm taking my time and trying to do it right because the industry is. Uh, very different than it was even 10 years ago. And, and I know that benzodiazepines are just starting to gain recognition and people think I've had a couple of agents say, how's this different from the opioid epidemic? And so I've had to be really clear that I'm saying this is an equally damaging epidemic, but also very different yeah. because people don't, don't know what's yeah. happening to them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so one thing I would like to ask you is to be sure and let us know when your book is published so that we can absolutely. let people know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are, um, there's a, a website called madinamerica.com that was started by an amazing man named Robert Whittaker. Um, he did a bunch of research um, when he started saying that people, as they were introducing more um, psychiatric medicines, people were getting sicker. And he spent years researching it and has documented this in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And he began the website as a place for people to, and, and professionals to talk about how we manage this kind of crisis of, you know, these new um, psychiatric drugs that may not long term really be as uh, effective as we think they are. And so I, I put my initial drafts of the book, a couple of initial drafts on the website, but it's so different now. I just want to caution people that it's a very different book now, but it does um, have some of the chapters on there so they can get a little glimpse. Right. How old are your kids now? They are 10 and 11. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they, um, I believe they do not have, they did not suffer through this, which I feel is my biggest accomplishment. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. To go through something like that for a year and, you know, maintain motherhood and two small children, I think it's commendable. I really do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Melissa, this is kind of how I I usually uh, kind of wrap up interviews that we do. and, And that is that if you had one message you would want to give to our listeners, I believe that some of our listeners might be addicts, but I think that for the most part, it is friends and loved ones of addicts who maybe don't know what to do. Um, but if you had one message that you would give our listeners, what would that be? Oh, oh gosh. Um, one thing is the, the level of compassion that's needed to uh, work with a loved one that is suffering either from physical dependency or addiction is tremendous. Um, also, people um, have to be ready to um, change uh, or to do what's necessary to be able to recover from any kind of dependency or addiction. Um, and that is something that will also just require um, patience. You can't push them. Um, it really, I, I think the only reason I survived was because I was determined. There was no one else. And I know for my mother, she, you know, she and I had conversations when she was drunk and high and I would say, please. And there was even as her daughter, there was nothing I could do until she was ready. So compassion, patience and the knowledge that it is their own path. That's great. I think that's a great message. Melissa, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing your story. And for absolute sure, do you know what the title of your book is going to be yet? Well, I call it Blood Orange Night. However, the minute a publisher gets a hold of it, (laughs) they may want to change it. So I'll just put that caveat out there. They've, I've had some like it, um, but in the final stages, but I will let you know. Yes. You have our email. Be sure and let us know um, when your book is ready to be published. Yeah. And I'll also announce it on my website. Perfect. So that's melissaabond.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely. Well, I hope you enjoyed Melissa's interview. I think that it's different than any interview we've had before. We haven't talked to someone who was addicted to benzos, and we definitely haven't talked to someone who, you know, had to take a year to get off and, um, you know, I mean, that was a pretty heavy-duty withdrawal. You know, one of the things I thought I would do with the podcast is look for inspirational quotes, because I think that so often... Um, you know, when people start down the the road of taking drugs, that there's, you know, there are definite issues that they have. And um, I looked for some quotes that I thought you might be interested in. And this was about like self-esteem and really liking yourself. And so these aren't my words, okay? This is actually from Mae West. And for anybody, I don't know, younger than 30, you may not know who Mae West is, but she was a big star and she was quite quite bawdy when she was um, performing. 
So this is what Mae West had to say. This is her version of self-esteem. We must fall in love with ourselves. I don't like myself. I'm crazy about myself. So that's my message to you this week. Be crazy about yourself because you deserve it. And we will be back again next week with another interview and have a safe, sober, and healthy week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.